Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. Final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Each week, Jeff, we've been saying to each other, we're going to have a quiet week. We're going to have a week where not a lot happens in the cricketing world after a relentless English summer. But we keep being denied because there's so much going on and we've got plenty on the show this week, ranging from the launch of the 100, Sarah Taylor's retirement. There's some T20 internationals being played between Australia and Sri Lanka, likewise between Australia and South Africa in the women's competitions and India's men have been playing South Africa's men in their first Test match series. Tons to get through. We've also got an interview with two connoisseurs of the short form of the game in Freddie Wilde and Tim Wigmore. They've released a book, Cricket 2.0, which documents the history of T20 cricket. So this week, Jeff, the flavour of the show will be about the shortest form of the game after investing so much energy through the summer in 50-over cricket and Test cricket. And I've got to say that Sarah Taylor did us pretty dirty last week, announcing her retirement literally two hours after we'd sent off the podcast recording um, where <laughs> you and I could easily do an episode. We could, we could do 55 minutes on Sarah Taylor's stumpings alone. Maybe, maybe, maybe on that basis we should start there, given you've mentioned Sarah's name. I mean, as you say, we, we, we've got a lot to get through and we'll get to the interview pretty soon. But yeah, as you say, I reckon we, we'd hit stop on our recording maybe 45 mm. minutes before when the news came through from the ECB that that Sarah has decided to end her international career after, well, she debuted in 2006. She played 226 times for England, a, a phenomenal wicketkeeper and batter. I mean, when it comes to her dismissals, as you say, we could spend a, n- a number of hours talking about uh, how brilliant she is as a wicketkeeper, but also uh, seven tonnes for England in 50-over cricket. An amazing comeback to international fair after taking 2016 out of the game uh, to deal with her anxiety uh, issues and, and, and came back to to play but acknowledged I suppose Jeff that it had caught up with her and after playing international cricket for the better part of 14 years the time had come. And I suppose one of the things about starting so early is it it's a bit like the Alistair Cook phenomenon where if you've played so much in that space of time that you can be relatively young in objective terms but you've still had your measure you know you've you've played as much as you can take and and wound yourself up for those big stage performances as much as you can stomach but um, what it what was really nice about it, like, like it's sad to see a, a great player hang up the gear at 30 years old, but the way that the response that she got and the way that everybody was posting up their favourite clips and so on, um, it was it was pretty heartwarming. I remember it was 2013 when people really started to realise just how special she was as a keeper and that was that, that outside edge catch at the MCG, I think it was, in 
one of the ODI games of that first multi-format Women's Ashes. So, you know, the, the, the real kind of diving away off a spinner from memory, um, you know, looping catch and just the, the way she got airborne and chased it and caught it well behind her body and so on. But it was the leg side stumpings that were her trademark where, you know, not always off a deliberate ploy by the bowler either. Some, some, uh, some very wide deliveries down there where she would be able to get out, take the ball so cleanly and have either have the bails off in a split second or wait for that moment to get the foot lifted before she came in. Like the sense of, of timing was absolutely impeccable and it was something that, you know, she gloved the ball more cleanly than anybody in, in either form of cricket. Yeah, timing's definitely the word with the batting as well. Like, you know, think about her wicket-keeping and, yes, you say, those remarkable chain of stumpings. The highlight reel is, is, is phenomenal. But um, her timing with the bat as well, she was a revolutionary, really, of the 360 game uh, in terms of we often hear women talk about the, the distinction between women's cricket and men's cricket. And one of the major parts of it is, is that they almost got to 360 cricket first and they've become such ex- um, you know wonderful exponents of it. And, and Taylor was on the vanguard of that. And to pick up on your point about the longevity, you're exactly right. I mean, people will look at this and say, only 30. Well, you know, a lot of men go on and play well into their mid-30s. But considering when she started as a teenager, as a 16-year-old, uh, it is an extremely long international career. And the fact that she's decided to, to pull the plug at this stage is just, I think, in many many respects, reflecting that. Um, um, as I mentioned off the top, like she did spend a year out of the game in, in 2016. Uh, she did speak openly about her battles with anxiety. I interviewed her at the start of this year uh, before she went on her first foreign tour uh, since the Women's Ashes of 1718. And uh, she discussed how much of a challenge it was going to be going back on the road. Uh, and how she didn't know if it would work. She was trying to get into another international tournament, the World T20 in Australia in 2020, which is coming up at the end of this southern summer, but she had no idea whether this would work or not. She was uh, taking as many precautions as she could by not flying domestically and so forth, but it, it did ultimately end up being too much for her. And it, it's it's interesting that uh, she finished on the same week as Marcus Triscothic, who we featured uh, on the show uh, this time last week, and... Triscothic finished his international career at age 30 as well, a point that uh, Vidushna Hantaraja made in his piece about Taylor's retirement. So it's not that uncommon for, for a player to finish. And I guess, the, if anything, we, we've been left wanting more, uh, which is a good place to be as an international cricketer or an international athlete. If you leave them wanting a little bit more, it probably symbolises that you have nailed your timing quite well. I suppose it, it says that after having had a couple of breaks from the game, she probably feels that she can't guarantee that that won't happen again and that you know she, she, if you can't make yourself available consistently at an, at international level then it it's hard to keep getting those opportunities to be able to come back into the side you know when you are ready so there's that if if there's the likelihood that it'll be ongoing then you know it's a very understandable decision to to pull the pin but i don't think she's got a lot left to prove to anybody Basically did it all. She was a world champion as a teenager and then again in her late 20s. So congratulations, Sarah Taylor. The good news is that we can expect to still see her on the domestic circuit over the next couple of years, at least in English domestic cricket. So we'll still get to see her behind the stumps in some capacity, but it has been a mighty career. Is she playing the 100, Adam? Yeah, good question. She hasn't been uh, listed as one of the the players uh, in the mixer so far. So the eight, uh, I want to say franchises, but I'm not sure if it technically qualifies as a franchise when they're owned by the ECB. But anyway, um, have gone and picked uh, two players 
uh, per side, and she wasn't part of that. Even though uh, we haven't seen Sarah Taylor's name as yet, I'm, I'm sure that she'll she'll get picked up by one of the teams. Uh, look, it's uh, it's worth us talking about the hundred uh, before we cut to the interview because we said we we wanted to focus on short form cricket. For, before doing so, though, we'll, let's get a little bit of admin out of the way. Uh, the live show tickets are going well. We haven't pushed too hard yet, but we'll start pushing hard on social media uh, this week. Uh, there, there's going to be fair bit of colour and movement by the sounds on the night so uh, make sure you jump on finalwordcricket.com and grab your tickets for uh, the live final word show in Adelaide two nights before the test match. Uh, Jim Maxwell is going to be there again uh, repeating the brilliant show that he put on for us in the UK shows. We've got another special guest which we'll announce this week. Um, we've got a couple of um, dignitaries welcoming us to Adelaide as well would you believe uh, Jeff so uh, it's all it's all moving beautifully. Um, okay I'm not I don't know I don't really know what you're alluding to or what an Adelaide dignitary is, but um, well, I well, suppose it, I'll it, find out. This is courtesy of our friend Matt Clemo, as we know, the most resourceful man in that city, the czar of Adelaide, if you like, and uh, he, he's going big on this. So it should be it should be a lot of fun. So grab your tickets at finalwordcricket.com. It's two nights before the test match. Most people um, who come along uh, for, for a test match uh, interstate like to get there and soak up the atmosphere at least a day before. Well, make your flight two days before. Get over and, and take it in because the, the live show component of the final word has been a, a really fun thing we've done this year. And we're just sorting out the details from Melbourne. We haven't quite got there yet. We've had a, a busy week. I've been knocking out walls in my house, been at a wedding all week and so forth. But um, but we are, we are getting closer to bidding down what we're going to do in Melbourne the week before the Brisbane Test match. It does sound a bit like you went to a wedding and then came home and started knocking out walls in your house, just just spontaneously. Well, it probably sounds like it with my voice, which is completely knackered, which probably reflects the fact that my house is entirely covered in dust and, uh, you know, I've been on the tiles at a wedding until all hours. But, you know, this is this is how it goes. You know what it's like. Got to be resilient when it comes to recording the, the show as and when we can um, connect across the 10,000 miles that uh, dis- uh, distance between us at the moment. Uh, so the 100, Jeff, that's what I was doing work-wise this week anyway. So we had the... Um, the launch, uh, well, the next stage mm. of the launch. We've had several launches so far, but this was the... And there'll the be more. We, the, the, I'm sure there'll be more. This was the bit when we were piled into a, a, a warehouse in Brick Lane. Phil Walker made the point in uh, his analysis of the day in wisdom.com that uh, we're getting quite used to being at uh, East London warehouses when it comes to uh, launches of anything to do with English cricket. So uh, the setting was familiar, um, but, I mean, the game isn't yet familiar. We haven't seen much of it other than a few exhibition hitouts, but they have started naming some contracted players which consist of uh, those who are on the ECB book. So each of the eight sides, this is in the men's competition, um, can pick one existing ECB contracted player, then two local icons. Uh, they've formalised the team names. I mean, Will McPherson broke all of those through the summer in the evening standard, but um, we know formally what the eight teams are going to be called. We know what the salaries are going to be, both for the women and the men, and last but not least, what the draft order will be. So we, we we did get a lot of information um, across the day. So, it, look, slowly but surely, they're, they're colouring in the gaps after finding out about this in April 2018, and it was terribly received there. I think they're getting something of a second chance. That's my sense of it over here, is that even though people don't like this thing, and, and they don't, I mean, when I say they, I mean people inside the cricket establishment, and it has been a bit of a, a siege mentality when it comes to the communications part of this task and noting that it's not about us, it's about... Um, people who are outside the sport and trying to bring them into the game and that's a laudable objective it feels to me like there is a little bit of a a second chance being given although it isn't always easy when you see some of the uh, some of the materials that are going out in and around it which still do frankly lend themselves to parity well there's there are a lot of 
opportunities for parity, I think is how I would describe it. There are parts of the objectives that you can support and, and I think, you know, the process in which the whole thing has been brought about has been bungled so many times that, you know, the goodwill, if there was any, seems to get exhausted mm. pretty quickly. Yeah. But maybe maybe there is a slight fresh surge of goodwill now that it's inevitable it'll happen. You know, people <clears throat> will pile a lot harder into an idea when there's a chance of changing how that idea might go ahead. Once it's become inevitable and there is no way out, then there becomes more of a, just a hope that it might work. This is going to happen. So it can go one of two ways. It can be, uh, it can be a, a, a train wreck, which will mean the game suffers in this country, or um, we have to try and find a way to put to one side the, the various bungles that you mentioned before. And look, having worked in communications historically, like I, I can't tell you how many times I have spoke to journalists and said, don't focus on the style, focus on the substance, focus on what's happening, don't, fo- don't focus on the atmospherics around it, look at the actual, um, the actual, uh, you know, uh, the end product. And I can sort of sense that's a part of the messaging at the moment. Try and disregard the, the, the ham-fisted way this has been foisted upon uh, the cricket community. Try and disregard the fucking shambles of a website, you know, really quite cringeworthy copy. We might come to that in a sec. Like, just focus on the idea that it's going to be cricket on free-to-air television. Yes, it won't be cricket uh, in the traditional sense or any of the three formats we're familiar with, but it'll be at least a version of bat and ball. It'll be 100 balls uh, either side. There'll be five ball overs, and it'll be dumbed down a little bit in order to make sure that new people to the game um, have a chance to embrace it, but fundamentally it's still cricket. And Yeah, I guess it's trying to balance that off. It's trying to accept that uh, and at the same time offering criticism where it's well and truly due. I suppose if you fast forward a year, you can think there might be moments where, say, you've got, I don't know, David Warner playing for a, an English franchise where you know half the people in the crowd are booing him because they still hate him and, and the other half are you know nominally cheering for him because he's on their team and you know he needs 38 runs from 15 balls to win a game. And when you bring it down to that sort of equation, it doesn't matter how many balls there were to start with. It doesn't matter what the, exactly. you know, how many balls there are left in an over or whatever it is. It's a relatively simple sports equation that someone flicky on the TV can understand. So as long as they can put across what's happening in the game, there's every chance that because we like cricket, people who like cricket will turn this on and eventually find themselves watching it despite their misgivings because it's still cricket, um, much like with, with the Big Bash, which had the same issues with very plastic team identities and so on at the start. But over a period of time, you they start to become a bit more normal, you get a bit more used to them and, and they don't seem so fake. So, yeah, I think there's that possibility. And But it's a, it's a difficult ethical choice in a way because, like you say, if this fails, then cricket in England suffers badly. I mean, they've mm. sunk so much of their spare cash into it. It'll be a huge financial impost. That it'll have repercussions for a long time to come. So people like you and I who are not directly involved but who like the sport, you know, we can't afford for it to fail because... Mm. We can't afford for the, for those ramifications to, to be felt. But at the same time, you're not entirely sure whether you want to hope that it succeeds given the fairly slipshod way that it's been put mm. together. I don't know. It's a tricky one. Cause I, I think that, to be frank, you and I might – we'll probably find ourselves working – in some respect around this tournament there'll be you know it'll be cricket that's being watched there'll be an interest in it um we'll be interested in it we'll probably be writing about it somehow we may not be writing glowing 
uh, feature pieces on what a tremendous match it was, but maybe we will. I don't know. Um, I don't know until it happens. So I don't want to trash it and throw it out, but I still don't understand how a more practical choice wasn't made to have a two-tiered competition, you know, eight teams in the top and ten at the bottom or whatever you want, use the existing county sides as a base, rebrand them and remodel them if you want as city teams with different mascots and just make sure you get 40 overs bowled in, in the, the available time. That should have well, been yeah. possible and I, I don't understand why it wasn't. Yeah, and especially when you consider that the women's T20 was the collateral damage and all this, wasn't it? And I know there'll yep. be some kind of T20 competition we've got to launch this week uh, of the new women's roadmap, which I'm looking forward to. We'll report on that in next week's edition of The Final Word. But And we've had the Kia Super League here for, I think we're into season four, and um, that, you know, women's 20 over cricket. I mean, where are the international talent, well, the international players which have made the KSL almost a semi Almost the, um, the, the KSL and the WBBL have been a, an all-stars game, if you like, because all the best players have been involved regardless of yeah. what country they originate from. Now, where are the, the best women players going to come to next year? The 100, which is financed really well, albeit perhaps not as well as we thought for the women's game, and we'll come to that in a sec. Or are they going to play in the T20 competition between the counties, which, well, sorry, not the counties, but the centres of excellence, which is probably what it's going to be, um, which won't have any television coverage and will, will largely be off-Broadway, m- much as it is with the WNCL. Like, if a high-profile player comes to Australia, they tend to play in the Women's Big Bash League, not the WNCL. Well, that's going to be mm. a similar predicament for the women. In terms of the men, there's going to be um, Steve Smith, Glenn Maxwell, Shahida Freedy, would you believe, Harbhajan Singh, Chris Scale, David Warner, Quinton de Kock. I mean... A decent clip of money too, one hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds at the at the higher end. Uh, they're all in the draft. I should add, they've not been picked up yet, but the draft is coming up. I think it's on the twentieth of October. I'm going to I'm going to head along to the draft and keep a pretty close eye on this. I think it, we need mm-hmm. to pay more attention to it. So I'm going to um, see how that all plays out. But uh, no, AB de Villiers. He's preferencing the other T20 competitions, according to reports this week. But one hundred and twenty-five k for what amounts to you know, five weeks' work or whatever it is, is, is not bad going. Although, as I say, the, the salaries for the women um, are between £3,000 and £15,000. That's compared to the men, where the men minimum wage is 30 k and the maximum is 125 So that's that's nowhere near parity. Not that we expected literally, you know, the same amount of money for either, um, for, for both groups, but it is a, a stark drop to the women's, uh, the women's game, and I'm sure we'll learn more about that in the women's launch next week. But, yeah, like, it's kind of like... I mean, 10, 10% is a pretty, you know, jarring figure when you've got a completely new competition, and that's yeah. the thing that has bugged me about it this week, where you often get people making the argument that who say, oh, well, you can't pay women athletes as much because... Um, because they don't produce as much value, blah, blah, blah. Now, even if you leave aside all of the very apparent arguments about the fact that men's sports have had a 100 years head start to build up their audiences and their credibility and all the rest of it um, and professionalise and and play at the very best possible level that their athletes can reach and all the rest of it, you've got a completely new competition coming up. The men aren't producing any money either because it's new. It doesn't exist. It hasn't been played. The men's comp might lose hundreds of thousands of pounds might lose millions you don't know we don't know that yet neither of them have been tested so to me that's a particularly bullshit argument in this instance Mm. it's not like where you've got an existing men's competition and you're phasing in a women's league alongside it you've got two completely new leagues side by side being launched side by side that will either succeed together or fail together and 
you're making a, an economic rationalist argument to say that the women's contribution to that it will be worth 10% of the men's contribution to yeah. that. It's, it's, I, I just don't understand it and I don't understand with the amount of cash that they put into other parts of the operation how that can be the area that gets squeezed. It just doesn't make sense. It's preempting a division that may not prove to be there. Yeah, wh- where it'll be interesting is that whether those sums of money are sufficient to recruit overseas talent in the same way. Like, I mean, I know that due to the KSL and the WBBL, as I mentioned before, it's been a bit of a circuit in the last four years, but players are starting to opt out of that. They don't want to play um, necessarily every single iteration of the competition. We uh, saw Anya Shrubsoul miss at least one, possibly two now, the WBBLs. That's just one example that comes to mind. There's been quite a few of them. So I wonder whether Mm. there might be a scenario where some players will say, well, actually, like, the 100 could be great, it's going to be on television and so on, but I might sit this out because I've got a pretty full dance card uh, and, you know, it's just another competition. So that, that'll, that, mm. that'll be one to watch going yeah. forward. And, the, I mean, the broadcasters to pivot into... I mean, I, I kind of get their frustration too. They're, they've been willing to invest quite a lot into this, uh, even though I fully agree with you, Jeff, that T20 cricket can be played inside the allotted window. Certainly women's T20 cricket can be played inside the allotted window that 100 gets on terrestrial television next year. But it's not just the BBC. It's also Sky Cricket tipping a lot into this, um, obviously BBC Radio as well. So there, there is a lot of work being put into this new project. And I suppose like they are feeling like they're getting a bit of a new bite of the cherry too, even though you know, perhaps the comp doesn't deserve one given the way it started off. But like I mentioned, that communications task ahead of them, it's a gigantic one. I, mean, I sent you some stuff during the week, Jeff. The, um, I sent you some website copy, which um, isn't there anymore, thankfully. They've, they've seen fit to delete it, which leads us to the inevitable question about who's been spearheading a lot of this behind the scenes. How many management consultants have had their, their mm. hands all over this compared to actual cricket people? Yeah, and how, yeah, how much cash has been spent on that, <laughs> yeah. which could have been directed to, to, to salaries and so on. I, the, exactly. A, a, thought, a thought occurred to me actually just then with the, um, when you mentioned the broadcasters. I was thinking if you've got eight, eight teams, they, they play, I think they have a, a local rivalry thing where they play like, you know, the, the sort of derby teams will play each other twice, the London teams play each other twice and so there's probably like eight group games and then a semi and a final. Right. Um, so, so probably be 10 matches. So if you were on that base band of 3,000 quid for, you know, as, as a women's player at that bottom band, you could be a radio broadcaster doing that season would be being paid more than one of the players that they were calling the game yeah, of. Yeah. You know, that's the that's the kind of distinction in in terms of in terms of pay. And then money's being spent on however many advertising companies who are doing things like ripping the first image off Google Images when they searched for audience of men yeah. um, and then using that as promo stock. None of it goes together. There, there was the, the stuff that Ali Martin put up, the descriptions of, of each team, none of which mean anything because it's, it's all just more nonsense. So... At least, know, at least the just... at least the Welsh Fire are going to stick it to the haters. I'm, I'm glad to know that uh, my boys over in Cardiff yeah. are going to be sticking it. What the fuck? I mean, seriously. Shall I? <laughs> shall I go through these um, for the benefit of everyone? Actually, yeah. I think that why don't why don't you, Jeff? Why don't you in um, pick your poetic meter, um, pick your uh, pick your framework, and then why don't we why don't we uh, lay it to the to the Shaw Marsh music? London Spirit is an iconic team for an iconic city, rooted in tradition, and lighting the way to the future with a unique ability to conjure something special. (laughs) Birmingham Phoenix, 
rise with Birmingham Phoenix and thrive together as one. Bigger, brighter and better united. This team is a celebration of the strength in diversity. Because different is good. (laughs) Follow Southern Brave and go boldly where others shy away. Endlessly curious, with an insatiable appetite for adventure. What's over the horizon? I mean, that just reads like someone's Tinder profile. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm Southern Curious now. (laughs) Join Trent Rockets for the biggest party in the country. Everyone's invited, so long as you don't mind having the most fun. Volume up, ready for launch. That's also a Tinder bio. (laughs) That's Trent Bolt's Tinder bio. (laughs) Manchester Originals, pioneers, revolutionaries. Celebrating a global city of firsts. Laughing in the face of limits. Raising the bar forever higher. (laughs) Step aside for Northern Superchargers. A team whose drive and determination is matched only by their desire to win. Powered by positivity and people who get stuff done when every ball counts. Belong to something bigger with oval invincibles. (laughs) Vibrant, expressive and free to play their own way. This team leaves a lasting impression long after the last ball. (laughs) Spark the Welsh fire. Burning bright with intense passion and relentless energy. Their hunger will prove the haters wrong. (laughs) Get ready to feel the heat. There are a few things I need to go through here, though, Adam, with, with you. Just give me your feedback. Like, I mean, just the repetition of stuff. Rise with Birmingham Phoenix and thrive together as one. I mean, together sort of implies that. Um, then you have a line saying, this team is a celebration of the strength and diversity, and then follow it up with, because different is good. Like, we assume you're a fucking moron who couldn't understand the previous sentence, so we're going to do that sentence again, but simpler. Are they banned, um, from, are they banned from using sentences with more than five words as well, I wonder? Something like that. Ugh. You can't. Then, you, then you've got the two Tinder buyers. Um, then you've got, I mean, I love the idea of describing uh, the team as revolutionaries when they're like a team that's been built in a top-down administration-centred competition <laughs> that's been entirely like it's, it's Command and the control, opposite yeah. of grassroots everything. <laughs> yes. They're such revolutionaries doing what the ECB have told them to do with the money. Yeah, re- re- <laughs> Laughing in the face of limits is going to be great when the first time one of them gets done for speeding, um, <laughs> one of their players. Um, a team whose drive and determination is matched only by their desire to win. Isn't that implied by drive and determination? (laughs) Couldn't you just say a team with drive and determination? (laughs) Um, The Oval Invincibles, this team leaves a lasting impression long after the last ball. What do you think a lasting impression is? (laughs) It's an impression that lasts. If it was shortly after the last ball, it wouldn't be a lasting impression. And then the last one, spark the Welsh fire. I mean, I've been to California where weed is legal now, and I swear I've seen that on posters in, in the windows of dispensaries. Spark the Welsh fire, burning bright with intense passion and relentless energy. Uh, you know, a, a medium level high that could leave you comfortably on the couch or dancing with friends. You're like, great, thanks. Um, and then there's the fact that, like, 
one of these teams is an actual nation. Some of them are cities. Some of them are regions. Some of them are like vague, like southern and northern. Like they're just compass directions. And then like, oh, for fuck's sake, none of it just... None of it coheres. It the is, centre cannot hold. Yeah, and, and it's kind of like, like and you know, we're going on about, as I said before, like it sort of used to frustrate me when focus on style, but like what else is there until the cricket starts, I suppose? It, it's such yeah. low-hanging fruit. And in that respect, I think that that's where big advancements can be made in the short term. So, I mean, this should be the stuff that um, in ECB Towers they realise is being made a mockery of and just scrap whoever it is they've been working with and, and start a game with some people that actually have a feel for the sport. Because, yes, it's about getting new people into the game, but at the expense of mm. at the expense of telling anyone who's ever cared about cricket before that you're not welcome i mean that's a that's a risky strategy especially when look it isn't without risk so anyway i, I hope it works and we've spent a lot of time shit counting it here i feel like but uh, but i guess um, it's said with love adam we had a moral obligation to shit can the bits that we've shit can <laughs> it doesn't mean there won't be some other bits that might be good yeah. it doesn't mean it can't work but yeah, I, th- I think fundamentally that underlying thing of um, the current people who, who like cricket suck and we hate you and we don't want you to come, but we yeah. also, and, and we think that will get us a whole new audience. Yeah, and that's uh, right. I mean, might, and maybe could have been a more integrated approach. You know, a lot of people need this to work and we're, some of them, we work in the sport. We want the sport to grow yeah. around the world wherever it can and certainly in England where I live and uh, where you tour most years, we want this to go well. So... It isn't said, you know, this isn't sort of coming at this from a position of wanting it to die. I think originally I did. I think my, to be honest with you, I think even as recently as the start of this season, I think, well, if they can kill it off before it gets here, then, you know, that, that yeah. is the ideal outcome. But that's not happening. So, um, and yeah, look, I, and I also appreciate that some people have observed that in 2003, T20 was seen to be the end of the world as we knew it when that first became a professionalised game in England initially uh, and now obviously uh, we, we, we go around the world and we'll have that conversation in a sec with, with Tim and Freddie but at least I guess the distinction there is that t- 20 over cricket was something people were very much familiar with uh, and it wasn't an attempt to, um, to to exclude, it was an attempt to include, it was an inclusive concept so um, as, as far as people who were already involved with the game were, were, were coming at it from. So Yes, look, a lot to, a lot to pull, a lot to pour over, and a lot to uh, dig in and out of. But uh, that gives you a bit of a primer. If you're in Australia, this is coming next year, and it's it's going to be a big deal. So uh, hopefully, we've given you some sense of where it's heading, uh, and hopefully, by the time we next report on it, some stage early in the in the new year, I'd imagine Jeff uh, will will uh, will be able to colour in a few more of the blanks. And this might be a good time to, to cut to our feature interview today with. Freddie Wilde and Tim Wigmore, who've written the fantastic book, Cricket 2.0. This is Jeremy Coney, born 21, 6, 19. So I'm a little older than you thought. And I'm on the final word. And who better to say the final word? Jeremy. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and I'm quite thrilled to have two men with me at the Oval, overlooking where they're um, tearing up the pitches for another autumn, uh, sitting with 
two guys have been on the show before, but they've, they've combined their forces to, to write a book, which is a very good book indeed. It's the history of T20 cricket, cricket 2.0. Freddie Wilde and Tim Wigmore, welcome to the final word. Just to start, uh, Tim, I know that well, both of you have written a lot about T20 cricket over the years, but what gave you the idea to actually sit down and write the history of something, which is only, what, 16 years old? In some respects, it doesn't feel like it's old enough to have a history written, but you really kind of made that case too. Oh, I think it is old enough. It, you know, it's now near its its twentieth birthday, then then it's tenth, and it's it's got so serious around the world. It's got so popular around the world. Mm. Um, and I mean, the, the simplest answer to the question of why we wrote it is we sort of wrote the book we wanted to read, and we couldn't find it because no one had written it. So we thought we'd we'd have a stab at it ourselves. Uh, Freddie, I, I think that the major strength of the book, looking through it last week, was that you've talked to a lot of human beings. It feels like you've written 20 long, really lovely essays on 20 discrete topics to do with T20. They obviously um, intersect with each other as you're going through it, but uh, you you know, as we all know, being feature writers, it takes a long time to assemble those, which requires talking to scores and scores of people, both on and off the record. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, as Tim said, no one else had really written a book about T20, so rather than finding other books to read and, and, and sort of taking our learnings from there, we had to go out and, and speak to the players and the administrators involved in, in T20, um, which is great because I guess we get a lot of first-hand accounts. Um, and that's, yeah, I guess that's what forms the, the spine of the book. How forthcoming were people to talk to you? Because obviously when you're going through the nitty-gritty of the IPL, and a lot of this is the IPL story really, isn't it, Tim? Um, but how easy was it to, to access these kind of high-profile individuals who usually are fairly secretive? I think actually a lot of them were quite kind of, maybe excited is the wrong word, but they were they kind of respected the premise of the book and they, right. they kind of engaged in the topic and they, they saw we were coming at it from a kind of serious angle. And a lot of them were, were pretty happy to, to talk and, you know, talking to guys like you know like Brendan McCullum and Kieran Pollard and going really deep on the philosophy of T20 and and, and how they think about the game and, and how it's shaped them which are actually kind of fundamental questions on one level but actually they haven't probably answered them all that much mm. um, so actually once we once we talking to people they were actually very actually often very curious and, and, and very happy to help um, and I think one of the kind of positives in doing this is because there wasn't a lot out there in terms of we could lean on so we kind of went with a blank canvas so we weren't we didn't know what we were going to write before we were writing it mm. we didn't even know who we wanted to talk to at the outset and stuff so we were kind of there was quite exciting to kind of a bit of a journey to kind of to go on and and develop as we, as we were doing it whereas if we were come to this in five or ten years time it, that would have probably been very different the burning question for me is that I don't like most people very much, and particularly when I'm writing, just leave me alone. How do you collaboratively write a book without wanting to strangle each other, and, and how does it practically work? <laughs> uh, without wanting to strangle each other, maybe we did at times, I don't know. But um, no, I mean, well, we, we, we divided it up, um, we literally gave each other different chapters to work on uh, originally so and, and then we sort of would swap them and read through and, and, and edit and change and I think there are some chapters which are largely Tim and some which are largely me and then some some of the times it almost ends up probably being a 50-50 split because we both sort of have different areas I suppose of of, of uh, expertise in, in many ways um, so that's that's kind of how it works. So a real keys in the bowl approach to, to writing. Yeah I mean the, the sweet spot which we, we got to occasionally is where you kind of you forget who actually who, who, who'd written what at what point is it kind of yeah the, the kind of brains just just merge into one and it's, it's a beautiful yeah. process the, the thing that sets you two apart and you're not the only two but i mean guys and women as well uh, but younger people is what i'm going to focus on here people in their 20s covering the game who have been obsessed by data and i think that obviously goes hand in glove with t20 cricket but this book interrogates the data like few others i've, I've come across in cricket 
Let's let's pick up on one aspect of it, spin bowling, which I found fascinating. I mean, you explain across three separate chapters the evolution of finger spinners to mystery spinners to wrist spinners, and you can kind of beautifully plot uh, how how each, I guess, mini era, I suppose, has has played out and why it's played out. Looking through the numbers, Freddie. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting on the things you said at the top there about you know whether T Twenty has been around long enough to write history. You know, in that time, sixteen years, as you said, there's been three distinct eras. Of spin bowling, it's it's you know it's a it's a it's an interesting art which has been transformed in a very short space of time massively, um, and I guess it was, it was you know something that I just came across while writing the chapter. I sort of was loosely aware of, well, particularly the rise of mystery spinners, and then the ICC had a bit of a clamp down on, on chucking, and then yeah. that led to the rise of wrist spin. I was aware of that to a degree, but when you really look at the numbers, um, there are three tables in there about basically the leading wicket takers in each era, and you can clearly see how the art has changed simply by the type of bowlers that have been dominating the game in that period. A, a format, Tim, or rather a, a discipline, rather, that that most people assumed would be beaten out of the game uh, in, in the shortest form, that clearing the ropes against spinners would be the easiest thing to do for batsmen. Yeah, yeah. So, so some people have kind of thought that that was a myth originally, but when we, we went back, we talked to Adam Holyoke, who, who lifted the trophy in the first season. No, that, that yeah. is true. That the, was, the commercial wasn't as right. Yeah, people thought spinners would, would be useless in 220. And certainly what no one ever thought was that the best way to uh, bowl in the power play would be through spin. And so spin has become, yeah, spinners are more economical than uh, seam bowls in all phases of the game, which is incredible. And actually suggests they're still on under bowled. There's a bit of a, maybe an inefficiency there still. But yeah, right. um, in, in the, the chapter on spin bowling, we looked at Samuel Badre, who's, you know, he's uh, on his LinkedIn profile the day after he, he won the second World, the 220 World Cup for the season in 2016. It still started with the fact he was a, a, a teacher in his school, PE teacher, <laughs> and then mentions, yeah, teacher by day, you know, one of the best bowls in T20 history by night. And he was a guy who, he, he, he doesn't turn, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't turn, turn the ball a huge amount. Um, but he's he's incredibly accurate, and he he, get, he gets bounce, and he he's a master of you know four overs, one for twenty five, bowling straight straight through at the top of the innings, which is yeah, which is a hell of a skill. Just to jump in is uh, there as well, like um, conventional wisdom being turned on it on its head is is a theme that comes through the book in, in in other areas as well. Obviously, so we talked there about spinners being set up as someone who would be hit out of the game, and they weren't. Um, the the, the Batsmen generally are the headline stars of, of T20, um, and, and it's you know, over the years it's become more and more apparent that having a strong bowling attack is, is the foundation of I think having a strong team, um, and even things like you know spin is sort of an art that you know, bowlers used to toss the ball up and spin the ball a long way. Rashid Khan is someone who's had a lot of success by bowling flat, fast, and not turning the ball. So it's sort of like we, we, we knew so little about T20 when it started, um, and in fact, what people thought would be the case is almost the opposite has always proven to, to be true. One of the things you guys talk about is the lack of real analysis of the game. Like a lot of the writing around the game is about the cultural impact of the game or the the sort of symbolic uh, meaning of the game rather than the actual mechanics of T20 cricket itself. And I think that's a factor even in the way I write, and maybe Adam would agree with this as well, that we don't have the same kind of nuance of understanding tactically of T20 cricket and kind of write about it still as short-form one-day cricket in a way. Is that one of the things you're hoping to address to give people the tools and the awareness to actually start dissecting the game as a game? Yeah, absolutely. So that was a comment from Raul Dravid a, a few years ago who said that T20, um, it differs to, one of the ways it differs to other formats is that the conversations inside the dressing room are so much more sophisticated than those outside the dressing room, i.e. people inside are talking on a higher plane to what's been the norm in the discourse around the game. 
Um, and yeah, one of the things we, I suppose, what we did try and do, and hope this book will do, is you know to to lift up the the kind of the, the popular perception of what's going on and the understanding and the, the nuance. Um, and actually, the more you, you you look at it, the the sort of strategy in you know people will will say you're insulting Test cricket if you say strategy in T Twenty is as sophisticated as in Test cricket. It's obviously very different, and we we actually love Test cricket as well. Um, but you, you can. <laughs> A game can be very short and still have a huge amount of strategy and, and nuance, and in many ways it has has more so because uh, Test cricket is sort of a purer game, and by that I mean because it, it's it's played over five days. Teams with the better skills they're going to win overwhelmingly, whereas T Twenty it's how you manipulate your, your resources and it's mm. it's how you play the do you play the poker game and do you, do you outplay your opponent on the poker game, and if you win then generally because most of the leagues have salary caps and stuff to ensure them of competitive balance so if you, if you outthink them you, you win a lot more often than not one of the most interesting things you guys came up with was the the interviews that the interview snippets with brad hodge where he broke down how to attack and just how complicated it is to work out how to attack as a batsman um what what do you reckon was your favorite interview in the book and you know what did, who did you learn most from from who you spoke to that's a, that's a good question um there are a number of interviews. Hodge was, I mean, talking about in terms of thinking about the game and breaking it down, talking to Hodge about how he targeted bowlers was really interesting. And then also in that same chapter, talking to Pollard um, on a quite different level, actually. Um, so Hodge was, was uh, it was interesting from a tactical and strategic point of view. And I think Karen Pollard was probably the most interesting human interest story for me because he was a guy who is, you know, he, he's almost as big a star in terms of statistics and what he's achieved in the game as Chris Gale. And he doesn't quite get the same acclaim. Um, but Pollard was the original T20 freelancer, really, because Gale had played international cricket before. Um, he obviously jumped on the T20 bandwagon. Um, and Pollard sort of basically tells his story of, of basically taking the plunge and saying no to a West Indies contract um, and, and committing his career to, to T20 and to freelance life. And that's something that jeopardised his, his potential to play for the West Indies and, and earn you know, decent but not spectacular money across a long period of time um, in, in an effort to try and earn a lot of money. Um, and, and, and ultimately it worked out for him because you know he became, he was one of T20's first millionaires. He won the Stanford 2020 game in 2008, and then a few months later, he was bought for close to a million in the IPL auction. Um, and he's still, you know, 11 years later, plays for the same IPL team. Um, and yeah, he's become one of the defining figures of the era. The Stanford uh, competition is a really interesting inflection point because when I think about that competition, I went to Antigua, well, I've been there a couple of times, but. The first time I went along, the grass was you know, above my head, and the second time around, the ground has been completely yeah. you know, retooled, and it looks beautiful. You can still see the Stanford branding on the side of the stands. They're yet to completely wash off, and maybe there's, a, there's something analogous about that in West Indies cricket. But um, the way in which you can find positives out of that process, and Pollard probably stands head and shoulders above anyone else in that he was able to use those competitions uh, early on when T20 was just forming uh, to realise that he had this skill set that was most useful in the shortest form of the game in that early stage. Yeah, but I mean, the, the whole Stanford thing is is massive from a kind of cultural point of view in the, in the Caribbean as well because it, it engenders a, a respect for, for T20 and it engenders simply, it was sort of, for lots of domestic players, it was the first step to being professional. So you suddenly have... They're thinking deeply about the game. You have have fitness coaches for the first time. So when I was in St. Kitts, um, I got uh, the water taxi to Nevis, which is yep. a little ironed off as 4,000 people. And and they all got to the semi-finals one, one year at the Sanford T20. And uh, I, t- I talked to Virgil Brown, a uh, guy who, who was involved in, in their team, and he said it just 
it transformed it transformed everything in terms of just they were thinking so, so deep about this format so so meticulously and they were ahead of the, the rest of the world in that and i think mm. in, in the, the stanford you know, stanford had happened to know six and oh eight and that actually that in that really is the, the roots of the West Indies dominance in T20 later which is they win the World Cup in 2012 and 2016 they reach the semi-finals in the, in the middle in 2014 um, and when everyone is basically writing all these kind of articles you know lamenting the decline of West Indies cricket and all these you know they, they don't respect playing for the shirt all this sort of these tropes that we go through they kind of hidden in, in plain sight they, they build the first international dynasty in T20 one of our first conversations Tim I think uh, when I first started writing about cricket for a living was about windball I mean I remember watching some windball being played in Antigua and being mesmerised by it this is tennis ball cricket uh, which is played in sort of semi-organised semi-serious leagues in different parts of the Caribbean but the analysis in your book about how essentially a made-up game has given them a comparative advantage in the way they play T20. I mean, it, yeah, you're going very deep on this. It's sort of not just about looking into the numbers, but the cultural influences of the short form too. Yeah, that, that was probably one of my, my favourite favorite, uh, aspects of the, the book to delve into. So, the advantage in windball, basically... Um, you better explain what windball so is, by the way. Windball, yeah, you're playing with, with, a, with a tennis ball and it's, uh, it's generally... The rules vary everywhere, but it's often eight, eight players aside, something like... 10 to 14 overs give or take a bit so the whole point of that is uh, the central way in which T20 is different to ODI cricket which is wickets are less valuable and you need to attack more that is amplified even more in Wimble so what you find is that a lot of players from other countries they struggle in T20 because they value their wickets too too highly um, whereas West Indies rather, they're, they're going the other way often so they're, they're going from Wimble to T20 which actually is the perfect mindset because teams so rarely get bowled out in T20 yeah. And the other thing, we looked at that from a bowling point of view, and that is you're kind of in death mode the, the entire time. So guys uh, like well, Sunil, Sunil Narayan, both his batting and bowling, that all, a lot of that comes from Wimble. And you, you're also just, you're so exposed to, to pressure as well because it, yeah. it is, everything's amplified and, and the cultural aspect, you, you have often crowds in, in four figures, you know, just for kind of local games. And the West Indies guys, they keep on coming back to play, you know, even after they've won these T20 World Cups, they keep on coming back to play Wimble. So the, the, the kind of quality on the ground is incredibly high. And it's, yeah, it's maybe now just to, you know, all backs players, you know, p- playing in the, in the park or on the beach. It's, yep. it's that kind of, it's a huge kind of cultural force. And actually understanding that was, was fascinating. And, and in that is, that is the seeds of this dynasty that we, we see. And oh, the other th- fun thing about the West Indies is their T20 record is very poor outside the World Cup because they often don't have their, their main team together and T20 internationals generally not taken very seriously. But in the, the World Cup itself, they've, they've been phenomenal. Um, and, you know, considering they are, you know, the, the reigning World Cup champions and have won it two out of three in the most popular format of cricket, it's such a basic thing which we, ne- we never really acknowledge when we write all this about the West Indies. It's kind of incredible. It's interesting that you put the Stanford game up there as a positive for the West Indies when it's such a lingering embarrassment for England. So if, if people aren't familiar with it, it's Alan Stanford, who's an American supposed billionaire who puts up a lot of cash to get England to come and play a Caribbean side and then um, England lose when they're supposed to win. They don't get the prize money and then pretty soon afterwards Stanford is exposed as a Ponzi scheme crook and gets sentenced to, a, what was it, 111 years or something like that in prison? <laughs> I mean, that's, so, I mean the, the Stanford, from, from an English perspective, like the Stanford, when 
we think of Stanford, we just think about that twenty million dollar game. But as Tim was yep. sort of alluding to, there was a there was a there was Stanford created a local league or, or a league amongst the islands. I can't remember, I'm not sure exactly how many teams there were. Yeah, so there were sixteen teams, which was massive because there are only six in all West Indies domestic cricket. So way more mm. players are, are getting into this, and the rivalry between the islands is is really intense because the, the serious prize money on offer. Um, and it's yeah, and this is happening way, way before you've got leagues that are taken anything like as seriously in other countries. So, so you've got you've got England coming over and having the embarrassment of losing that game, and, and also I just I think the optics of you know Giles Clark on <laughs> on the outfield at uh, which whatever sh- whichever ground it was with Lords, yeah. all of the cash in a giant perspex box and <laughs> and all the rest of it, and and it really seems to reflect England's very difficult relationship with T Twenty because England create it, then they hate it, they get jealous of the IPL, they spend years and years sniping India for having a more successful competition, and now they've got the hundred which. I'm interested in where that sits in that kind of displeasure and rivalry because it looks from one side like a refusal to even adapt a T20 competition to be their flagship comp. Like they can't be seen to be following India. They have to do their own thing or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I suppose in a, in a way it's almost like they, they don't, they don't want um, to copy it completely. But then I suppose in, in another respect they've gone completely full circle from sort of looking at the IPL and thinking from a sort of traditionalist standpoint, you know, it threatens everything that we sort of hold dear. They've now gone even further and created a new format which sort of shows how much things have changed in the last 10 years that, that they've, we've got this to this point. Uh, Freddie, um, I won't ask you to go too much into the, uh, the 100 analysis because so you might have to declare your interest because you'll be very involved in the 100 next year and that's fair enough but the, the discussion that Jeff raises about the IPL and English cricket I think one of the most interesting findings of the book is that you look at the England ODI squad in the 2015 World Cup you look at it in the 2019 World Cup the major difference between the two squads is the volume of cricketers who've been exposed to the IPL since Andrew Strauss liberalised the attitude from the ECB I mean it's compelling it's almost irrefutable that if not for the IPL uh, England's 50 over success well it, it may have still existed like it's hard to argue without the counterfactual but there are so many players who've had the opportunity to play in the premier t20 comp in the world and with the exception of really kevin peterson they didn't have that chance before yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, and the, the super over in the final was the sort of the case in point, if you like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Joffre Archer, Josh Butler, and Ben Stokes, probably England's three most successful IPL exports, um, were the heroes of that game. Uh, and yeah, you know, studying England's sort of uh, changing relationship with the IPL was was a massive part of the book. Um, and yeah, I mean, the the most incredible moment of all in England's relationship is 2016 when Sam Billings uh, he gets picked up on the, on on the cheap by the IPL because he puts himself at the lowest price and because it's a quite a complex deal with with counties as is common he has to pay back a proportion of his salary every day so the the upshot of this is he's going to the IPL but he's losing money so uh, Andrew Strauss who's England's director of cricket he thinks this is ridiculous so he uses the ECB's cash to reimburse billings effectively so the ECB from a few years earlier the kind of the, P- the Peterson row and the, the sort of civil war which was hinged on the IPL only four years after that, England are actually subsidising their players to play in the IPL. And that's because Strauss, he, he recognises that the money is one thing, but there's huge, huge sporting advantages mm. to playing it in the IPL, that you know, you're being exposed to the best players, you, the, the, the pressure, also the pressure of being an overseas player and yep. of, you justify your spot, the, the best learnings and so on. And he sees that's a, a brilliant sporting advantage. So he does an analysis of... 2015 World Cup semi-finalists he finds that 38 of the 44 players in those four uh, four semi-finals in 2015 had played in the in the IPL whereas I think only six of England's 
World Cup 15 in 2015 had um, and he thinks this needs to change and so we see a dramatic shift so before 2015 only 12 English players a year play in any T20 leagues leagues abroad around the world like a minuscule number really um, by since, uh, since 2015 35 have so three three times as many and then that culminates in the world cup when 13 of those players i think in the squad had had played in the had played in major leagues before um and obviously joffre archer would not play for england that world cup without the ipl because england he because of his qualification period england had very little time to see him playing odis before but they recognize that those skills you know playing in the IPL and Big Bash and so on lots of skills were very transferable and obviously that was that was massively vindicated not, 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 not only was Archer um, you know, he, he appeared in the World Cup thanks to his performances in the IPL but not only did, the, in, did England go and encourage him to play in that but they also respected the standard of cricket in the IPL enough to pick him on the basis of what like one or two games and he was rested I think he played he made his debut in ODIs against Pakistan mm, um, against Ireland, Ireland and then he played yeah. Pakistan but England rested him from that Pakistan so he's yeah. already confident enough essentially that he was good enough based on the IPL which represents sort of how far England's thinking with regards yeah, to that tournament had changed the IPL plus one spell out here which in a game that was called off after 15 overs like yeah. right you're good to go mate we'll see you in the first yeah. World Cup game <laughs> there are those upsides to the IPL and there's also a lot of concerns about it one of the things that you look at in the book is the likelihood of IPL expansion expanding teams expanding their window and gobbling up more of the you know a bigger window in the international cricket calendar and what that means for international cricket going forward yeah, so one of the findings from the book is it seems overwhelmingly likely that from the next IPL deal, which begins in 2023, uh, the number of teams will increase from 8 till 10. The league will increase by anything between another 10 days at the kind of lowest end to, to up to a whole month, really. So it's, yeah, the IPL, it wants to, it wants to get bigger and that's going to put more pressures on on international cricket and also other domestic T20 leagues. I mean, one of the things that, again, we, we look at it in the book is that lots of leagues set themselves up and they just they want to just be a mini IPL and that really doesn't work. And re- one of the reasons it doesn't work is because uh, these leagues are not allowed to have Indian players in and Indian you know, <laughs> Indian fans, they, they don't tend to actually watch a lot of cricket that does not involve, involve India, certainly outside of, of world events. Well, what's, so the, what's the quote in the book? Um, uh, uh, they watch Indian cricketers. India, yeah, India doesn't watch cricket. India watches Indian cricketers. Mm. And that's from one of the senior people in Indian uh, sports, sports media, sports broadcasting. Um, and so a lot of these leagues, it, when you look at the finances of most of these leagues, that the clubs and teams are, are losing money and we've seen uh, the can this league in south africa that collapse before it even started one in uae did the same uh, the league in canada have, have have paid its players late the euro slam which was ireland scotland netherlands that that collapse as well we've we've just seen recently afghanistan bangladesh and pakistan they've all done changes to reduce the amount of their spending on on salaries because they were they were leaking money as well so there's it's it's a kind of paradox. The T20 has made cricket more popular worldwide, and more people are watching it than ever. But the finances are actually not added up for many leagues. As Jeff and I uh, argued on the podcast at the time, had they just called it the Euro Thrash, it would have survived. I think the Euro <laughs> Slam was the primary problem. You do some great. I'm not going to. Um, there's some there's some really lovely chapters. Uh, one, uh, the Unicorn about A.B. de Villiers, which is a beautiful read in, in of itself, um, explaining the Chris Gale phenomenon, the Gale storm, which I can recommend too. But it isn't just like a love in. Like you have to do the hard yards too. And I mean, I like the bit about 
um, the issues with T20 cricket, the exposures when it comes to uh, uh, match fixing, spot fixing, uh, performance enhancing drugs. Like you, you can't do a history and just talk about how great it's been. You, you need to go under the hood and look at some of the exposures as well, Freddie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Tim and I are, are big fans of T20 cricket. Obviously, which is part, partly why we've written this book. But we're you know we're well aware that it's not um, it's not all good news stories or feel good stories. Um, so we you know we wanted to tackle both sides of it. I think that we you know essentially the the, the book is being written partly because we recognise that T20 is here to stay, um, but in what form and how exactly it will you know evolve into the future is uncertain. And there are certainly many negative aspects to do with the format, which which we, which we look into. Yeah, we, we we talked a bit before about the kind of lack of discourse of the game and the impact that's had. Um, but that applies off the field as as well because a lot of the coverage has been kind of entertainment ishy and kind of what does it mean for test cricket and so on but actually a lack of looking at this this sport as a kind of as a business entity really and that's why you know we we did stuff on the viability of leagues and we really what we found is the the level of um of drug testing is is pretty abject it's Mm. so it's so haphazard and it's so sporadic i mean some leagues we found did no drug testing at all in some leagues which is absolutely incredible some of the stuff you had there about the 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 out of competition testing that i mean if you're a freelance cricketer and you're savvy you could get away with not being tested for performance enhancing drugs i mean you might get tested but you could game it in such a way that it's very unlikely that you would be um to think that a game which relies so much on explosive explosive power has that vulnerability i mean i'm glad you've shined a light on that because again i don't think we i don't i've never even thought about that i mean maybe that's a failing of me as a journalist but i've never really thought too much about how performance enhancing drugs could be manipulated on the basis that i simply assumed that the drug testing regime was sufficient but when you consider that it, it steps outside of the normal international realm and when you're just thinking about domestic t20 leagues that's where the exposures lie yeah and one of the problems of where that comes from administrators have kind of not really seen t20 as a wholly separate game they've sort of seen it as a shorter form of odi mm. cricket and have sort of but actually if you you take a, st- a step back and like yeah it's it's right for performance enhancing drugs um and there needs to be serious action on that at the moment it's so ha- so haphazard i think we can be pretty sure that when we see people in international cricket that's mostly clean but in terms of in, in many leagues of course because it, the whole idea is if you if you do well in one league then that could be your golden ticket to the to the IPL mm. and then even the IPL seems to have pretty decent drug testing but you can obviously you can just time at the point at which which you dope so when when you when you are tested you have nothing in, in your system and you're good to go and then you're back on the caravan again <laughs> tim you're pretty interested in fixing as a subject and corruption in all sport i guess but particularly cricket um how prevalent actually is it because i think as people who work in cricket we've all heard a lot of things that we can't say because there's no specific evidence but you do hear the same names come around very often and you know some of them are names that you'd much rather believe were not involved there you know some of the greats of the game are in there at times uh, with recurrent suggestions that they've been involved in shenanigans especially in t20 leagues Um, how big a threat and how prevalent is it going to be going forward yes i haven't done a lot of research on this uh overall i I'm pretty sure that fixing is more prevalent than ever in cricket, but I should sort of deconstruct that. I think international cricket that we see the top level, I think it's it's nowhere near as prevalent as it was in the, the late late 1990s, which was the kind of golden era, the, the original golden age of. <laughs> well, actually, no, that's not true. CB Fry, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, the original golden age was 19th century, but the the new golden age of of fixing was was the, was the 1990s. So I think international cricket that we we see is a lot cleaner than that. But but these T20 league, I mean, one of, one of the 
it actually kind of goes back to the economics that like, I talked about. And the reason is, if you if you buy a team and you are losing money, well, so I've been told, an easy way to do it is you... you towards the end of the draft you, you pick up guys on the cheap uh, who otherwise would not have been picked up and you say you're we're going to give you a contract but you you play for me and in, so in return for being being picked up you do what what you're told by me on occasion and that's how you keep getting so there are mm. i mean i wasn't able to to verify this but but people do say some owners make make money by betting against against their own teams um, which is absolutely incredible. But I had a stat there about uh, investigations in the Afghan Premier League this uh, last year. I think there were seventeen, um, and that's yeah, that's 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 very worrying. And again, the match fixing in cricket it's it's too disjointed. The way it's it's you know, anti corruption is, is too too disjointed. And this is in fact a common theme in, in quite a lot of cricket that because the way it's it's run is very very fragmented it creates all these cracks that bad stuff can can happen in uh, freddie there's putting the sort of negative stuff to one side the data-driven analysis on uh, rule challenges bangalore the chennai super kings how you've um, explained really neatly how teams have offloaded players who were overvalued and that's all really interesting fascinating analysis but perhaps the most inspirational um, chapter is the one that deals with cricketers who we just would never have heard of if not for T20 um, the democratisation of the game through domestic leagues especially through the IPL and now a player like Rashid Khan who would have been so far off Broadway had he arrived 20 years ago now he's one of the global superstars yeah well you know th- this is something that's become particularly apparent in the last four, five, six years as T20 has become more professional as, t- as teams have been run more efficiently essentially and data has been played a big role in that um where you come from doesn't matter as to whether you're going to be picked up by a side so obviously we've we've got the sort of seven eight nine ten traditional cricket nations who are full members of the icc who play test matches around the world if you were born outside of that those countries you're not going to have until t20 came around you just simply didn't have a stage on which to perform um and i think the two two of the probably most prominent examples of that are rashid khan and mohammed nami from afghanistan um, we, we all know about Afghanistan's rise sort of through the international ranks, but what they did um, it was sort of become global stars through T20, and that's because you know while Afghanistan have recently gained Test match or full membership of the ICC and are now a Test nation, um, Rashid and Nabi were, were picked up in the IPL before that happened um, and became household names thanks to their performances in T20 cricket um, because it's, essentially there's an open market and, and, and I think it was Tom Moody who was the coach at Sunrisers looked and he thought I, I want to I sign some spin bowlers um, and he looked at Rashid and Mohammed Nabi who's also a hard-hitting all-rounder and thought well these are the best guys for the job it didn't matter where they were from it didn't matter that they didn't play for Australia or India or Pakistan or Sri Lanka you know these yep. traditional countries they're from Afghanistan they're the best players for the job and, and, and you know he signed them and they've been mega stars since then and it's not just Afghanistan either I mean the Nepal story is all wrapped up in, in T20 as well, Tim. And I know you've you've written your first book, of course, was involved in looking at countries outside of the, the first 10 or 11, um, you know, uh, uh, full member nations as it, was, as it was at the time. But, I mean, you know, a story like Nepal's rise to where it is now, it, it probably wouldn't happen without the incentive structure that T20 provides. No, absolutely not, because... Thanks to T Twenty, these these players have actually got a reason to to stay in the sport because you couldn't make enough money playing domestic cricket in in Nepal. You, you wouldn't really have a chance of being picked up as an overseas player. Yep. You wouldn't have realistic chance in international cricket. Um, so you wouldn't have that that those kind of 
that mechanism to improve and, and get better and, and be identified. Uh, so Sunny Lamachani is a great one. So he, he gets gets picked up and is um, on on the cheap by Delhi and is in his first IPL game. He bowls to AB de, de Villiers and stuff, and he, he holds his own and, and does terrifically. There's Ali Khan as well, who's a fantastic. Um, in some ways, the best sort of a lot. So he he grows up in Pakistan. He moves when he's 19. He gets a uh, he moves to America, gets a, a green card, um, and he, he plays a lot of uh, table cricket as a kid in Pakistan. And just before he, he goes, he, he, he calls his uncle who's in the uh, US. He says, you know, shall I take your, my cricket stuff? And then he actually doesn't take his cricket stuff. So, and, he, and he talks about how on the, the plane there, he's, he's excited to go to America, but sad because it's the end of his cricket career. But he, he finds that when he's there, he, he slowly gets involved in the league structure and stuff. And he, he stumbles into this strong, the US Open, no relation to the tennis, which is um, a little kind of... <laughs> um, a little <laughs> I mean, Arantxa Sanchez Vicario was not involved. <laughs> not the first time she's been mentioned on the podcast, Jeff, either. Callback. Uh, <laughs> um, which has some of the Star Wars Indies players, and he, he's on a team with Dwayne Bravo, and Dwayne Bravo says, t- tells his agent that this guy is great. His agent picks him up, he then gets a deal for the league in Canada, and he does, he does really well, and then he gets... Uh, deal in the CPL in Trinidad and, and is, is fantastic and he's, he's since played in uh, the, the Bangladesh Premier League and a, a few others um, so he's you know he's come from absolutely nowhere and uh, the, the great the great irony of this is he, he the job he got was at a, a cable wireless company called Cricket <laughs> which had absolutely no connection at all to the sport, so he has to actually pack up he has to pack in his his career at cricket to have a real crack at being a professional cricketer. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the things that um, you know, not, not only did we write the book because not many people wrote about T20 at all, but it was often criticised, and, and people would often look at T20 and say it's it's killing Test cricket and, and all that we hold dear. And, and it, it's, it's become very apparent over the last few years that T20 is, is the best format of the game from which to grow the game and take it, you know, truly to, to non-traditional places. So it's it, it, rather than destroying what we know, it's it's the best you know it's the best chance we've got to take the game uh, to new people and to new fans. And I think you've seen that now. The ICC have expanded international. Well, the, every single member of the ICC is a T20 nation, so all matches are official T20s. Um, and I think, you know, that, that, that sort of encapsulates what T20 offers the game globally, not only for sort of countries that we've followed all our lives. One of the conversations that we have in cricket all the time that we can't answer because it's unanswerable is how, you know, older, uh, older era players would have gone in the modern times or modern players would have gone in the past and all the rest of it. What can you tell us about the difference between modern athletes playing cricket compared to the fitness and the training and so on that people had in past years? Yeah, well, I, I th- well <laughs> cr- cricketers now are clearly fitter than they've ever been, and I think that that's something that's been accelerated by T20, and particularly with regards to batsmen. Um, I think, you know, we, we've, we've seen the physique of players change. It's something we explore in the first chapter, which is with Brendan McCullum. We basically yep. talk about a- attacking batting and an aggressive mindset, and there are two sides to that. Batting's changed psychologically, so in, in the way that um, McCullum thinks about the game and how he values his wicket, something that Tim touched on earlier. But then also there's the physical side of things, and, you know, we've seen... Over over the last 15, 20 years, how the physique of batsmen have changed. And, you know, the West Indies have sort of been at the forefront of that. Obviously, guys like Gale, Pollard, Russell, these guys are huge blokes, hugely strong, powerful players um, who are wielding really heavy bats. You know, the size of the bats nowadays is absolutely enormous and you partly need to be, you know, you, you need to be strong to, to wield them. Um, and, and, and I think that that's the area we've most clearly seen sort of fitness change in cricket has been with regards to batting and, and strength. Yeah, maybe the slightly, the, the, the dark 
side of this potentially is there's a there's a famous quote from the Indian physio well in the pantheon of famous Indian physio quotes uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, about f- 15 years ago and he's asked about the the drug testing and he says the, the brutal truth is that these players players are not fit enough they don't train enough to even benefit from steroids and that <laughs> <laughs> and i'm sure that was true then and i'm maybe not not as true now that is no longer the case uh, one of the things i liked though is that you did you do give credit where it's due you know there's this impulse to say that everything new has just been invented but you talk about lance klusner as the original range hitter you know setting a bowling machine to bowl a just missed yorker and then hitting five or six hundred balls for six in a day um and you also go through the correct history of the scoop shot which i was delighted <laughs> with that that doug marilia gets first credit uh the the zimbabwe lower order uh, gentleman who pulled it out against glenn mcgrath first then ryan campbell the western australian keeper refines that a bit and then tilakrat nadilshan who's credited as the inventor a lot of the time refines it still further um and then you go all the way back to leary constantine <laughs> who play, uh, apparently played the first scoop shot back in the day can you talk us through this evolution uh, because i'm sure the people want to know yeah th- this, this is what i expect from the final word um so <laughs> So actually, yeah, w- one, of, one of the things as well is that yeah, T20, the slightly insecure way in which some people who like T20 promote it, they say everything is completely different, everything is, is new. And one of the, the kind of pressures of researching this has been how much of what we think is great in T20, actually it builds on skills that developed before and sort of tweaks them and enhances them. So yeah, the, the story is with, with Larry Constantine, he said in his book that, which Shield Berry kindly pointed out to me, um, that he played the scoop shop in 1933. Um, out of yeah, <laughs> that's gorgeous. Um, he, he didn't call it the scoop, but he he said you know there was no one there, so I thought you know why not? I'd I'd put it over the keeper's head. One of the challenges as well is that uh, T20 started in 2003, and as Tim said, there's sort of a tendency to say that all the innovation started then. And the difficulty, I suppose, for us from a writing perspective is, and I remember when we planned the book, we came up with quite a lot of chapters which we ended up having to get rid of because um, you know a lot of innovations obviously start well before T20. There were guys like Bob Warmer who sort of you know started taking cricket seriously, you know, the art and science of cricket, and 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 that that sort of um, the beginning of. Uh, forensic analysis of the game if you like and we, we wanted to get stuck into that but we you know we sort of you know you've, you've got to stop somewhere if you like but you know all, all innovate a lot of the innovations that we see started well before t20 and i guess it was a case of sort of picking out the most important characters and and one of the ones and again in in with regards to attacking batting is viv richards we, we talk about being sort of the original one of the original guys who sort of really prioritized attack over defense and i think there's a famous quote from him where he talks about um he'd much rather have a player who was good at attacking and then he'd teach him how to defend than the other way around and that kind of encapsulates what you need from a t20 batsman is that run scoring and an ability to attack is is the priority um so yeah throughout the book there are there are guys that we will we sort of identify and it would be with bowling as well, slower balls as well. There are but you know plenty of players. Adam Hollyoak was was one of them. Um, Ian Harvey in Australia again, who you know who they, they of course played a little bit of T20, but the, their innovations were then picked up by guys like AJ Ty and Jay Dernbach, who have become prominent T20 bowlers. So you know history did not start in 2003. It started oh, well before that. Be still my beating heart. <laughs> talking about the Ian Harvey oh. back of the hand slow ball. I remember reading a piece one day that said that the, the, the troubles between Israel and Palestine could be just simply resolved if they watched and Harvey bowling at the back of his hand for it is so beautiful it can bring anyone together it's interesting that you mentioned those players that was the most emotionally resonant bit of the book for me I think was the way that you wrote about bowlers particularly who 
who got sorted out, who got figured out. And there's a real grief to the way that Jade Dernbach particularly um, spoke to you in his interview, the, the ways that he would get thrashed on social media because he was bowling the opening overs and the death overs and, you know, going for more runs than anybody else. And then, you know, guys like AJ Tai, even Sunil Narayan with his, you know, recasting his bowling action, Ajantha Mendes and these sort of players who were mystery bowlers for a time until someone told batsman the answer and then they were not mystery bowlers anymore yeah i mean it's interesting how we actually came to decide to talk to Dernbach is throughout the you know, throughout the book we, we pull out key players and then a lot of the time they're the guys you expect so mccullum gale pollard um spin bowling narine badry um and then we looked at fast bowling and there are a couple of guys who stand out malinga and bravo being two but they've also sort of struggled to um, they've gone through ups and downs if you like and, and we sort of bowlers and particularly fast bowlers have struggled to sort of form an identity in the same way as spin bowlers obviously who are sort of the surprise package and batsmen who are sort of like the headline stars so rather than talking to someone who you know you know, someone like Malinga and Brava who had been you know they're sort of unique if you like who'd been successful for a long period of time we thought maybe we'd talk to someone who who as you said burst onto the scene Jay Dernbach he, he was a figure of fun in England for for, for a while but it, when he originated he, he was ahead of his time he had a back of the hand slur ball he could bowl Yorkers he could he could do things that no other players could do actually and he foxed you know I remember him foxing MS Dhoni in a couple of T20s um, you know he was a, he was a really skillful bowler but ultimately um, as you said he was found out and, and I think he retired um, oh, we, we talk about his last his last T20 international where he was taken apart at the hands of AB de Villiers. He was bowling with a, a wet, dewy ball in Chittagong, um, and de Villiers was in the form of his life. And, and I think he bowled a nine ball over. And Dernbach says that, that single handedly ended his international career. And I think we sort of you know thought that it would be best to talk to someone like that because for you know Jade Dernbach's one guy, but there's a hell of a lot of other bowlers who've gone through similar things. Essentially, you know, they're, they're, they've got a, a bag of tricks. They're picked up uh, you know, in an auction or somewhere they might be paid a lot of money someone like Tim Mills has paid 1.5 million for RCB and had a terrible first season these guys are suddenly stars and then you know a couple of bad games they get you know their confidence is low they get on the wrong end of, of, of a great player like de Villiers and their careers in tatters and I think um, but we, we figured that that was probably the better way to tackle fast bowling which which we describe in, in the book as the impossible job um, because you know it, it is a thankless task at times you're asked to bowl with a ball that doesn't swing on pitches that are flat uh, with tiny boundaries and as I said huge strong batsmen wielding massive bats um, it's a really difficult job to succeed in and certainly succeeding for a long period of time um, and then yeah, it really comes through in that interview Dunback was really forthcoming about um, you know st- struggling in the game and how hard it was to succeed but then also the sort of the aftermath of that as you said he got a lot of abuse on social media and, and maybe partly because of how he looked he was a guy who had tattoos and quite a loud haircut and, and, and big earrings and that sort of all contributed to him being as I said a figure of fun um, so yeah it was interesting to sort of uh, uh, having spoken to a lot of star mega stars who have been very very successful across a long period of time it was interesting to talk to someone who perhaps had a slightly different experience of T20 yeah I mean we, we talk about vulnerability on this show a little bit and you, you don't tend to think of fast bowlers being as vulnerable as batsmen I mean you look at uh, some of the some of the players that we've we've interviewed and focused on they fail more than they succeed on the basis of the attractive brand of cricket they play which means they're more susceptible but Tim you spoke at the start about um, wickets having uh, and even now like that wickets perhaps mean too much in T20 compared to I mean the inefficiencies you talk about in the book but generally Generally speaking, fast bowlers are the ones who do the intimidating. They're not the ones who are being intimidated. And I think that, that's that's borne out really nicely um, in that chapter where you do interview Jade. But, you know, it, it does 
sort of repudiate that that view that I mean you start one of the chapters with a quote from Michael Holding uh, reflecting on uh, Kieran Pollard describing him as not a cricketer not a serious cricketer or something to that effect and I mean I, I don't think people hold those views anymore I, I, I wrote about your book last week and reflected on a stupid comment that I made about five or six years ago before I worked in cricket to James Sutherland and, and, and he kind of politely said to me mate it's, it's not about you uh, and I can understand that far more now but I think people who loved test cricket or love test cricket the, the instinct the reflex is to say that well T20 is just, just a thing for other people it's not for serious cricket people but it's the, the amount of respect the game has now the form of the game has now I think I feel like anyone who loves cricket is evangelical T20 there are very few people who love cricket and don't have a deep respect for T20 that, that, that feels like a bit of an evolution in the space of these 16 years yeah, absolutely, and to kind of talk about the the hundred. One of the ironies of the hundred is that lots of the people who said when T Twenty was introduced in county cricket sixteen years ago, it would destroy the fabric of the game, ruin everything that, that was great about it. Now they they've positioned themselves as the arch defenders of T Twenty against this new horrible beast called the hundred. So that's that's one of the kind of old old, <laughs> old ironies that in sixteen years has happened. Yeah, I'm fairly sure that uh, Jeff and I will get into the hundred, but we won't subject you to that because your area of expertise for the purpose of this conversation is indeed uh, twenty over cricket. I just wanted to say. Thank you for starting a chapter with the line The winner takes it all, Abba once sang These were prescient words about the future of the global economy <laughs> That's the most Wigmore sentence ever written There's some parts of the book I can't tell whether they're Wild or Wigmore But that I know very much is Wigmore No, no question whatsoever I, I do like a couple of the, the cultural bits which reinforce your age you, At one point you quote Ian Chappell when it's the WG WG Grace quote, um, and, and things no, like it's, it's uh, no, it's a chapel yeah. reference, but it's a, it's yeah. a Grace ism from a hundred years before that. So, but I mean that, that's kind of it, isn't it? Harsha Bogley um, puts in his forward to the book that um, that young people like yourselves need to be listened to. We need to pay attention to what you're saying because you're on the cusp of the the future of the sport. Uh, you're you're forward looking, and I think that's a sentiment that I can certainly share. Having read this thing, it's not some flimsy book either. It's a, what the better part of 400 pages. You've you've put the ads in here, so I mean, congratulations on on that on on making such a dedicated effort. Because as Jeff can um, you know account for as well, writing books isn't isn't an easy thing. It's often not a profitable thing. It it's done at great personal expense a lot of the time. So so well done, boys. Cheers, no thanks. That might be a, a decent point for us to close it off. I know you've also written a, a team of the era, which you, you must. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an appropriate appendix to any cricket book to name an 11. Uh, you've got like 30-odd um, uh, things that you think might happen and recommendations that could happen in the future of the game. So you, you're having your two cents there. But again, just to reiterate that, uh, that, that this book is available in, in all of the usual places, I suspect. Is there any sp- specific place you're driving people towards, Tim, already? It's on shelves now, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's on shelves. Uh, yeah, so as if you buy it in a bookshop, that's better for us than if you buy it on Amazon. But if you buy it on Amazon, it's a lot better than if you don't buy it. So yeah, <laughs> just that, buy it. Yeah, just 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 buy the book. It's called Cricket Two Point Zero. The authors are Tim Wigmore and Freddie Wild. Congratulations again, and thanks for joining the final word. Thanks, thanks for having us, mate. Thanks, mate. It's been great. Hello, I'm Jared Waitley. Join us on the Final Word podcast. Final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Tim and Freddie for their great work. That was great to sit down and have a conversation with them at the Oval a couple of days ago. Uh, I kind of mentioned it off the back there, Jeff, but, um, you know, Harsha is right in that we need to kind of accept sometimes that that people that are younger than us uh, have got their finger on the pulse with this stuff. Uh, And in the case of Freddie and Tim, they very much do. They've done some great work Yes, and while they're travelling around the world covering T20 cricket in all corners of the globe, (laughs) do you know what would be really useful for them, Adam? 
Do you know? Can you guess? A sad a phone. phone. A Wouldn't sat they phone. like oh a satellite days. phone? A telephone that operates Please. by satellite, not by earthbound communications. <laughs> None of your humble, gritty, earthly communications. This is the communications of the angels. The signals that fly among the stars bounce off satellites and hurtle back to Earth at terrifying speed. Maybe they should have got you to write the... Maybe they should have got you to write the team, the 100 team oh, descriptions. you with, can. With off-the-cuff stuff ECB, like if you're still listening, yeah, commission me. I can do it. Like, it won't sound as embarrassing <laughs> as the stuff you've got already. I can guarantee you that. Um, yeah, if you were to buy a sat phone, Adam, where would the first location spring to mind where you could get one? I reckon I'd get one from satphoneshop.com. Would that be the place to go? I think if go? you didn't know that that was a website and you typed it in on spec, you would find that it is a website and it's there. It's already there, satphoneshop.com. What a remarkable thing. Very friendly sponsors of ours at The Final Word. They sell all kinds of satellite communications, um, all of the Iridium satellite phones and the different packages and data packages and so on that you can get so you can watch... Uh, things on the internet, wherever you are around the world. Basically, if you can see the sky, you can get reception. I actually, I, I watched half of probably the worst movie I've ever seen, maybe, um, yesterday, which was World War Z, or World War Z, as they call it in America, <laughs> um, starring Brad Pitt, at which point, uh, there, there is a point about halfway through where um, Brad Pitt's wife, who is not, really given much of a character role in the piece except looking sad and, and anxious calls him on on an iridium satellite phone which is so reliable that it rings while he's on a korean military base and thus wakes a large number of the undead who try to tear into pieces and several soldiers lose their lives as brad pitt's refueled plane gets to take off so thanks karen good work um, but that just tells you how reliable an Iridium sat phone is. It will ring even when you are on uh, an air, uh, what do you call it? Aircraft carrier, a UN aircraft carrier off the coast of, of the USA, and your loved one is on a deserted military base in South Korea that's been swarmed with the undead. Your Iridium phone will still ring and put you in mortal peril. So get one, basically. That's what I'm so saying. That would, that would suggest that my comment from last week at this time of the show where you could use it on a plane at 30,000 feet. I'm, I'm fairly confident to back that in. If, if, mm. if Brad Pitt is hearing it on a military base, yep. um, then I'm sure that you could use it on a plane, which if you're into being uh, contacted when you're flying around the world, personally, I like the couple of bottles of wine, rom-com, cry, sleep um, method, avoiding my phone. That's just a nightly if, thing if for you, though. To, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's just a little, a little yeah, just mean couch time uh, after hours. But um, but if you want to be able to talk to people on that long journey from Australia to England, then, then what better way to do it than to grab yourself a sat phone? I mean, I think that this bugbear of mine about King's fucking cross station, I mean, I need a satellite phone. I, I'm spending more and more time around there and it's just no reception. You just can't do it. And I, and I don't know why. And it, it's driving me to distraction. So um, if you're listening out there, police or whoever it is is denying me a signal um i'm, I'm going to get around it by or get around the boys by um, getting myself a sat phone get around the boys and by the boys i mean the metropolitan police force and by get around i mean evade <laughs> um, 
I think the main use I would have for it on a plane would be I would like ring you and then have a really loud passive aggressive conversation about how the person in front of me had reclined their seat onto my legs and was cutting off the circulation. <laughs> have you got a view about that by the way? I, mean, I know this gets this gets talked about quite a bit like what the etiquette is around mm. reclining. Like do you as a tall I mean you're six foot five and change. Do you take the view that if everyone just reclines then everything works or is, or is that a utopian view and obviously someone as long as someone in the chain doesn't recline then someone else is getting done over and therefore nobody should do well, it well it it doesn't work the reclining doesn't help me you know if, if i'm a tall person and i'm reclining there's still nowhere for the legs to go you're still at a really uncomfortable angle so i i would tend to take it on more a case-by-case basis and like you know eyeball valuation assess the size of the person behind you i will sometimes go for a slight recline but never more than that um (laughs) but also oftentimes because my legs are enormous they'll be like jammed into the back of the seat anyway so then when the person in front tries to recline they can't and then i just let them have that illusion for an hour or so and then they think their seat's broken and they give up and then i'm all set for the rest of the flight do you do the passive do you do the passive aggressive thing? Well, it's not so passive, really. Where you dig your knees in as hard as possible to the back of the person in front of you, like on a domestic flight when reclining is not on when you're no. going from Melbourne to no, Sydney, no. for example. Yeah. You, if someone tries to do the, the recline from Melbourne to Sydney, do you get the knees stuck um, into their back? Not deliberately, but if if they jam their back onto my knees, I'm not going to make them more comfortable, you know. But yeah. but all I'm saying, all of yeah. this could be avoided if I called you and said like, "Hey, can you?" come to the airport you may need to carry me out of the terminal because my legs no longer work because <laughs> the circulation's been cut off from the knees down by the gentleman in front of me you know because that we all want to avoid conflict so that's what i'm saying so look the upshot is get a sat phone you can go to satphoneshop.com all of those words are spelt as you might expect there's no like cool internet jargon in there sat phone shop you know how to spell them you know how to type them in com and get yourself a, an Iridium phone and get attacked by zombies. Right, let's get stuck back into it. We've got some series to have a quick squiz at without going into too much detail because I'm mindful we had a long chat about the 100 and a long interview after that. But Australia's women were hosting their first internationals of what's a massive summer for them, which is capped with the World T20 in February and March. So played Sri Lanka's women in three T20s. Now they've got three one-days back-to-back-to-back, all squeezed in in the space of about 11 days. But as you'd expect, Jeff, they, they won the T20s three-zip, but they were kind of hard-held in the first one, or they weren't initially because Beth Mooney smacked uh, another century at a ground that she loves playing at. But uh, And then we saw Chamari Adepadu return in kind, and if not for the fact that uh, she was knocked over, uh, I think Megan Shute did it with a Yorker. Um, had that gone another couple of overs, she might have been able to have hauled down Australia's 215 or whatever it was. Maybe then, just. I, I never quite felt that she was in the game because Adepadu was doing it absolutely on her own. But it was more an innings to enjoy just for the pure fact of the innings itself, um, for the fact that it came in a game where Sri Lanka had been smashed around the park. They're, and if you're blunt about it, they're a fairly limited team. Their, their women's side struggle a lot of the time. They basically don't have batting power. They've got a fair array of slow bowlers who can keep the runs down on slower pitches, but um, they really don't have any firepower if, if Adepadu doesn't explode and the 20 over format hasn't been her best either she's generally more effective when she's got more Mm. time to work so it was more the fact that Mooney had come out and brutalized them and they could have been completely dispirited and fallen apart and instead Adepadu said well I'm going to take the opportunity on a really nice batting deck to really express myself and play 
one of the most exciting innings. I mean, I think the highest ever innings by a Sri Lankan women's player in T20s was 60-odd um, that day. They, yep. they just hadn't had a big score in the format, and she made the, smashed that by a mile and, and made their first century in the format. Which, to a certain extent, speaks to how inconsistent Adipadu is. I mean, we've seen her make a big 100 against Australia in the 50-over World Cup a, a couple of years ago at Bristol, which we were calling that game, and she has shown at different intervals that she's one of the most... One of the cleanest hitters in the world, uh, and yet she plays in some of these domestic T20 comps and can't get going and is very inconsistent mm. for her country, but wants to be... I mean, I've interviewed her in the past, and she's got she's flooded with ambition. She wants to be one of the big dogs in women's cricket, but has just been hurt by her consistency. And I guess that isn't helped by the fact that she hasn't got many dependable players around her, but, um, yeah, I, I suppose the fact that that game was well and truly out of reach. They were chasing... 218 actually for victory that might have helped in a way liberating her just you know it was almost an exhibition game even though as you say like had it gone for a couple more overs we, we may have had a, a close finish it was mostly about how, how deep can she take the game yeah and what can she do to express herself and that was what I enjoyed the most about it so I mean Mooney's innings not to let that disappear was a beauty like she's she's made a few hundreds now and they're always good to watch but I think the key thing was they had a really good surface at North Sydney. There was there was pace and bounce in that wicket. So Mooney was going through cover a lot, left-hander opening up that angle, carving away through and then over, depending what she needed to do with where the field was, and was able to play through that offside a lot. Adipatu went all around the ground, so she was, she was going over cover and over point. Every time they were outside leg stump, she was so clean. Like, every, every strike was between the outfielders, between the boundary riders, um, hard sweeps. When they pitched full, there, there was one that she hit onto the roof down the ground over long on. It was absolutely massive hit. Um, mm. Quite a lot of straight hits, you know, so not a player slogging where that 100 she made at Bristol, a lot of it was leg side. This was all going straight. And then there was one moment where uh, Perry decided to try to bounce her um, and, and Taylor Vellamy, they, they thought they'd throw in some short balls and she just started hooking them for six as well. It was, it was um, you know, outstanding in the range of shots and the, the fact that every different kind of stroke she, she tried to play, she absolutely clattered it. The second two T20s ran more to script, really, in that uh, in, in, in the in T20 number two, Sri Lanka only were able to get to 84 for eight. So Adipati wasn't a factor there. Australia knocked that off. Uh, in no time at all, they did it in 9.4 overs, to be precise. So not much of a contest there. And then the third one, Elisa Healy got the chance to bat first. They made another massive score. So 226 for two they made in their 20 overs. Healy, 148 from 61 balls. Rachel Haynes made 40-odd at the start with her. But um, the Sri Lanka were kept at 94 for seven in that failed chase. They were thumped by, well, what is that, over 130 runs or something like that. So... Um, a, hu- a huge margin to wrap up the series 3-0. But Healy, again, I mean, for a player that um, has been named the player of the year last year internationally, like this, she's just going level after level at the moment, isn't she? That was the highest ever score in women's T20 internationals for Elisa Healy. She beat Lanning's yep. 133 from earlier in the year, uh, only a couple of months ago, really. And I think the, the thing that strikes me with Healy at the moment is just how consistent... I think she's the most consistent ultra-aggressive player, probably in men's or women's cricket, that she's always got the approach of attack first, score fast, go hard at the start, and she doesn't change that mantra. It doesn't matter what else is going on. That's her job in the team. She was so, I mean, consistently low-scoring for years and years and years, and then the last probably three years she's 
she's been so consistent at making good scores despite that attacking mentality. You expect to see a player with that mentality fail two times out of three. She seems to fail one time out of three. Yeah, it's a nice callback to that Wigmore and Wild conversation we were having earlier today, Jeff, really, about Brendan McCullum in that it's like you need to get yourself into that mindset that um, you are going to attack even if it doesn't work. You, you, you've made a conscious decision to play that way from the, from the, from the get-go. And, and it's like once you've almost made that concession as a player, then you can take your game to another level as an opener in, t- in, t- in T20 cricket and... Certainly what she's done over the last couple of years. Her record's unbelievable, whether it's at domestic level with the Sydney Sixers or what she's been able to do for Australia in 50-over cricket now as well. So well played, Elisa Healy. And, and we had the first of three one-day internationals up in Brisbane on the weekend, Jeff. And Australia made eight for 281. They did it easily uh, in terms of who was in the runs. It was the usual suspects, really, wasn't it? Meg Lanning, 73 Beth Mooney, a half-century, batting down at number six. She made 66. And Rachel Haynes, at the top of the order, who's having a, a wonderful Indian summer of sorts in terms of her career. She made 56 and it continues to um, ensure that her career will continue. This second half of Rachel Haynes' career, Jeff, has been more productive than the first, really, when you consider that she thought it was all gone and she spent more than five years in the international wilderness. It's a, it's a great story. Well, it's been a lot more productive than the first and she's recreated herself as a another very aggressive player you know plays all the shots goes hard at the bowling and that's her that you know that's who she's recast herself as and it's worked so it's that consistency and that's what you mentioned with Adapatu where she doesn't have the quality of players around her which doesn't help but she's also she's often a very slow starter um, often comes out and potters around and just doesn't look like she's striking it cleanly and then has the occasional day where she's striking it so cleanly that she's unstoppable so I don't know how you iron that out but but it's also clear that she's the best player in her team by such a big margin particularly batting wise mm. that she just doesn't have the support um, and, and it's it's a little bit it's like it was with Natalie Raj for a long time where everything depended on her and if she was out then then the game was over so um, it's difficult but it's it's the amateurishness of the batting approach from others as well. That 100 in Bristol, one of the key things I remember is she made 178 out of about 250 um, and she faced less than half the strike. She batted for almost the whole innings, but her other players couldn't get her on strike. Even when she was hitting them as well mm. as that, they weren't getting a single to, you know, there were, there'd often be five or six balls in a row where she didn't get to face. Uh, she made 13 off 32 balls at the top of the list in chasing that Relatively big Australian score. They were all out for 124. So Australia won by 157 runs. Some pretty interesting bowling figures here. So two wickets each for Valamick, Jonathan and Gardner. But you look at Valamick, seven overs, 7.3 overs, three maidens, two for 14. That's encouraging. I think Valamick's, uh, you know, comparative advantage is her potency and pace. But there have been some question marks about her her, uh, her accuracy. But um, getting through three maidens will be almost more important in some respects than, than the two wickets, I fancy. And then Ashley Gardner, nine overs, four maidens, two for nine. It's like junior figures. So... Um, she continues to, you know, her spinning. If, if anything, like you look at Ash Gardner now, I and mean, we, we've, you know, talked a lot about her over the last five years. But I think she's reached a point where her bowling. Um, I don't want to say it's her main weapon. That wouldn't be doing her batting justice. But she's a legitimate all rounder. She's not a batter who bowls a bit. She's she's a gun off spinner. Turns it yeah, and she she's someone whose bowling maybe guarantees her a spot on the side where her batting might still make her a bit of a luxury pick. 
Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, the other women's series going on over the last week and a half has been between India and South Africa. It's a great series because they're playing nine games. I mean, it, that's a serious proper hit out. So six T20s in three one days. We'll, we'll come back and look at it all in total when it's over. But in the six T20s, uh, which were played uh, at where were they? They were at at, uh, at Surat. Um, the first game there had a massive crowd. The, some of the picks on social media were wonderful. So it seems as though at last the Indian, the broader Indian cricket community are really embracing this Indian women's side who are on the rise. When you consider that Mithali Raj had, I think it was 2,500 followers on Twitter at the start of the 2017 World Cup. Well, that's in the millions now. And you know, it, it's a blunt measure, but it gives you some feel for the exposure they're getting uh, at home. So well done to the Indian cricket crowd for embracing them. They, they won 3-1. There were a couple of washouts there. South Africa won the last of the six games and they've got three one-dayers which start this week. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that and the individual performances. That same fixture between India and South Africa has started. Well, they've had the white ball games. We spoke about them last week. But the uh, the uh, the test match, Jeff, which I haven't had a chance to watch, watch much of due to the aforementioned wedding that I've been at, but... Uh, uh, but uh, but it looks like it was a high scoring affair and uh, and some con- significant performances, not least from Rohit yeah. Sharma banking twin tons as an opener at the first time. Well, you will be pleased to know that I did have a chance because why wouldn't I? Because um, what do I do when I have a holiday but watch test matches? Um, watch cricket, yeah. yeah, look, Rohit Sharma. There was a lot of pressure on him coming in as an opener, being guaranteed the spot for a while. But things things move fast in this current Indian men's team. You know, Rishabh Pant was supposed to be the the lock as the wicketkeeper a few weeks ago and now he's out of the picture and Riddham and Sah is back in the test side. So Rohit was opening the innings, um, massive 100 in the first. I mean, there's not much you can do when a team's none for 300 on the first day. Mayank Agarwal, who we saw mm. play at the MCG um, when he came out yep. to, to join... Boot the tour in Australia last time made a double hundred there um, and and then as you said more runs for Rohit Sharma in the second innings but it looked like it was going to be an absolute walkover because India piled up 500 and then South Africa were 4 for 80 um, and then it was Dean Elgar the, the unloved, the unfashionable um, but he's such like I, I hesitate to use the cliche but he is genuinely a fighter at the top of the order he's you know it, that that year was it last year when um, when openers around the world had their worst averages for about fifty or sixty years, and mm. he was still the top of the runs list there. Um, we saw him make really important runs in um, in Port Elizabeth when uh, Australia were all over South Africa there, and and um, you know he was he was the one that kept them in the game for a time until also the hundred at Cape Town. I mean, people forget that now because obviously everything that happened at Newlands after that first innings, but. Um, that was uh, that wasn't for nothing either. And, I mean, Dean Elgar too. I wouldn't say he's under pressure, but he's just come at the back of a county campaign where he made sod all runs and averaged twenty nine as their overseas player at Surrey. So, I mean, you know, he, he was in need of runs, and to get them in the first Test match is uh, well, it's always handy when you get them at the start of the series and get into the series. Quinton de Kock made one hundred and eleven. I saw as well, Jeff. Again, I didn't see the innings, but judging by the the glowing reports on social media, it sounds like he's been. Yeah, year. it was. There was. Well, I think you could pretty safely say it was. He, and with him, it was the positivity. I mean, he he dug in for a long time with Elgar when they were batting together and then opened up more with the tail later on. But um, with Elgar, it was all about decisiveness. So he, it wasn't that he went all defence. He, he hit sixes, um, but he 
he took on the spinners in a calculated fashion. He played some aggressive shots and then mm. um, defended really well, used his feet well. Uh, he's had problems against off-spin in the past and was able to hold his own against Ravi Ashwin, who took a bag of wickets in that match. I mean, he's well, he's got to 350 wickets faster than... Well, as fast as Murali did, which is a pretty ridiculous rate when you consider just how many overs Murali bowled and the massive bags of wickets he took. So, uh, so Ravi Ashwin's back yeah. to flying in test cricket. And I think that fight back was just really important. They were still never going to win the game, but, you know, century partnership that, that Elgar put on with... Quinton de Kock and the, and the way they were able to sort of push that down to level within a 100-run deficit. And sure, India piled on the runs in the second. Rohit Sharma made another 100 and, you know, they declared nearly 400 in front. But there was still something in that first innings for South Africa to take out of that game. And Chidasia had a pretty good test match, a very good test match, six wickets, four in the second dig, a quick fire, 40, second time around. Uh, I, I still can't ever quite fathom how... Ravindra Jadeja doesn't play in every Indian Test 11. He's just such a fantastic mm. cricketer. Uh, Kohli uh, was there at the end when they were piling on declaration runs there. And then in the second dig, lo and behold, Mohamed Shami, 5 for 35. I mean, the guy just has this ridiculous record in the second dig. I saw Crickviz post some numbers earlier today. I didn't get a chance to interrogate them properly, but I'm um, just reiterating probably what we already know is that for whatever reason, he doesn't take many wickets the first time around, but he just absolutely cleans up as test matches get towards the towards the uh, towards the end. So um, they're, they're so spoilt for choice, aren't they? India, they're, they're missing Jasbir Bumrah, but they can turn to Muhammad Shami and Ishant Sharma, who wasn't as influential this week, but over the last twelve months he's been fantastic. Of course, you know Bumrah has been the leading fast bowler in the world. They've got Bhuvaneshwar Kumar uh, just sitting in the wings there too. So yeah, with this Indian period of success and you know beating India at home it's almost impossible at the moment it hasn't been done for years and years and years but it really is now being built as much on their fast bowling as it is their batting and their spin bowling so uh, they are the complete package right now and quite rightly the number one side in the world there are two more test matches to come between the nations over the next two weeks one at Pune and they finish the series at Ranchi so we'll keep an eye on that next week on the final word in the usual way we will. Jeff. Um, hopefully we'll get a bit more time to talk about it because we we've run very long already and I mean yeah every week we <laughs> keep thinking well we'll have more time to do everything around the world but there's there's always so much going on no, I'm sure we will. This has been The Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks to Bad Producer Productions, Jay Mueller, for looking after us. DC Astrid, our website, finalwordcricket.com. Jump on there, especially if you want to get involved in our live shows in Adelaide and Melbourne. We should have the details on there for Melbourne by the time you're listening to this or maybe in a couple of days' time. Either way, we'll pump that up on social media. There won't be shortage of links and whatnot to click and bring your mates along and so forth. They've been pretty fun, those live shows. Thanks to everyone for reviewing us on iTunes and ratings and all the rest of it. I, I've seen that we've been um, we, we've, we've kept our number one position. Actually, we lost our number one spot in England this week, Jeff. I don't know if I told you this, but we lost it to um, uh, another podcast that I'm involved in, which we're talking about football, not cricket at the, the moment. Treachery. So the treachery. The Ides of March. We've, we've done the Quinella. We've done the <laughs> But um, the good news is that I'm sure that um, we, we will replace the uh, the greatest season that was football podcast with this again at the, the top of those charts. But the point there, of course, is that the reviews and ratings make a massive difference and, and we're seeing that at the moment. So thanks so much for your, your kind words and, and clicking five stars and all the rest. Uh, thanks to Satphone Shop, Jeff, who have been very loyal supporters of us in recent times and we look forward to working with them throughout the Australian summer. Uh, tell you about three more weeks before you and I are back together again. So together we've got at last. Three more episodes. Episodes 
We've got three more episodes uh, which we've got coming down the pipeline, a couple of interviews and a couple of issues-based shows which will mould one of those together. But, yeah, we're, we're uh, really enjoying what we're doing at the moment. Next week we'll come back to Patreon as well because, as you say, we've, we've run fairly late this week. But if you want to um, kick a few bucks in the tin, as Jeff always says, to help the, help the world go around, it's patreon.com forward slash the final word. I think you've said it all. And I think we've said enough. Until next time. Goodbye. Talk soon. Bye.